Today on episode number 427 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Learning in Uncertainty with Dave Cormier. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Dave Cormier is a learning specialist for digital strategy and special projects at the University of Windsor. He cares about how our educational systems, our teaching practices, and our concepts of learning contribute to a more pro-social society. His path through this conversation is by thinking about the ways in which we think about our challenges and how we teach them to others and learn them from others. Dave Cormier, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bonnie. Great to be here. You have been on my list for quite some time as a desired person to have on the show, and you sent over a suggestion telling me a little bit of the research you've been doing on ambiguities. So as a very loyal note taker, I just put that into my, here's the thing we could talk to about Dave, and I I came to it, I revisited it this week, and it landed really heavy on me because what you've been researching is ambiguity. Yeah, just the... The whole concept of uncertainty and how it actually is at the root of what we've always been doing, right? And it's it's funny because where COVID, like for many of us, uh, struck me and sort of gave me new perspectives on how things were happening. And I'd started working on a book right before COVID started. And I thought that what I was trying to do was unveil the uncertainty that actually lived underneath all the work that we were doing. And then COVID hit and then everybody was suddenly aware Right, like, and sort of made this transition. So the last three or four years has been this sort of process of trying to unveil uncertainty under the system, and then now, how do we deal with it? How do we adjust to it? How do we come to terms with the fact that it lives in the midst of all of our lives now? And how do we help people prepare for it? Right, like that's the big thing. How do we get there? And ourselves certainly, but our students. How do we adapt our classrooms? How is it impacted by sort of the, the different environmental impacts? on our classroom. So whether it be information abundance, whether it be the ways in which the narrative of our universities has become less clear and, and, you know, has become part of a political landscape. So lots of different things. It seemed so simple at the time, yet I, again, revisiting it this week, just, just landed pretty heavy. And I do think it's important to acknowledge it's a pretty normal human tendency to want there to be something that we can predict and want there to be something we can cling on to. I can remember I I had worked for the same company for 11 years, and it was actually the job that I took the day after I graduated from college. So I didn't really have a practice time getting to navigate ambiguity after college. It was, you go straight to work, and then, you know, you do that same thing. (laughs) Don't take a lot of vacation. Don't really suffer a lot from a lack of ambiguity in terms of my work life. And then in a 15-second layoff speech, all of a sudden, I I got to experience that really radical transformation of having that part of my identity really ripped away. And so, I'm, of course, many decades later, looking back, I just know 
when when I think about COVID and, and I think about all the trauma that, I mean, so many people were already experiencing such trauma, but those in more privileged positions were, it was kind of a lot of their sense of identity ripped away. And yet so much is just, I got invited to this interview and the first question was, you know, how do we get back to normal? And I just thought, like, I don't, <laughs> we're not getting back to normal. So I guess I'm, I'm curious for you, whether it's someone, either yourself or someone in your family or or others that you're close to. What what types of things have you seen yourself or others do that were kind of that attempt to get something, some part of your life back to normal, the sock drawer or anything like that come to mind for you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we try to travel as a family this this summer and uh, just the whole process of doing it, the process of going out in public, the idea of, you know, sitting on an airplane, the masks and how we do it and how we navigate around other people. And how we renegotiate the new social contract, right? And I think when we talk about uncertainties and how we confront them, the new social contract of how we interact with each other in public is a great example. So you can't go, and I mean, we were in Scotland and we're here in Canada and we've been in the States, just being in line in a grocery store. Some people are leaving more distance between others. Some people are consciously not doing so. Right. The social contract that existed that we all sort of understood inside of our culture before that, before COVID, was simple. Like we lined up, we had ways of doing it. There are people who wouldn't line up, but we knew they weren't doing it right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas now we have this uncertainty in the midst of us in terms of even such simple things as that. Like, how do we line up? How far am I supposed to be from that person? And just the ways in which we address people in line, even like looking somebody in the face and talking to them. Am I somehow potentially infecting them by talking to them to a stranger face to face. Like there's all of these sort of micro uncertainties in our lives now, which make that return to normal, whatever that means, this journey of confronting uncertainty, right? In small ways and obviously in big ways too, when we look at ourselves on more of a cultural basis. Dan, you talk about traveling and that, at least in my experience, in my younger years would be an opportunity for me to rethink some of these things because you mentioned eye contact and there would be certain cultures where I would need to avoid making as bold of eye contact as I might hear in the United States. And then other ways of where you sat at a table that, that actually did have to pay attention to things like that. And so that was an opportunity to experiment with different kinds of social contracts, but it does definitely seem what when it's happening in your own very neighborhood and, and yeah, places yeah. that started to feel normal to you. I know another way that us as educators can sometimes we can fall into a trap of trying to cling to some form of of certainty or or constructing things more precisely has to do with the kinds of questions we tend to ask our students. Sure. So for me, at the at the core of the work I've been doing for the last couple of years, I come back to the same story from the same student. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have 70, 75 co-op students work for me during the pandemic. And they were students who were in engineering. They were in kinesiology. They were students who legitimately should not have been in my office. Like they, they their idea of a co-op work term was not working with me. But because of the pandemic, they couldn't get into the workforce in the same ways that they would have otherwise. So I put them through. And I've been working with students and training students for probably 15 years now. So I have a whole process that I go through and whatever. But this was online, so you don't get that same sort of, a lot of the tools that I would have used to make people comfortable are not the same when you do them from an online perspective. And so there was a a difficulty in getting started. And there was a sort of a challenge that I've always seen with 
younger students where, you know, if you ask them a question, they tend to try to give you an, they don't either don't know how to respond or they try to give you a single answer or they continuously ask you to repeat the question. What exactly do you want? Can you tell me more about what you want? And they don't seem to be able to take their own initiative. Brandon, my one student, uh, we were about a week and a half into, I think it was the second work term I was working in. And he sort of puts up his hand in the, in the middle of the call. There's eight other students in there. And he goes, look, I have to apologize to you. And I said, well, He's a lovely, lovely kid, like a really nice kid. I, mean, I don't know what's going on. He goes, for a week and a half, you've been at saying that you wanted my opinion. And I assumed you were lying. And I'm like, I looked at him strangely. And he goes, no adult has ever asked me a question without already knowing the answer. And I assumed you were doing the same thing. But it's occurred to me finally that when you ask for my opinion, you actually want it. And now I've just got to kind of reorganize my brain and figure out how to respond to you that way. And that was the kind of light bulb moment for me in terms of what we were doing as a system with our question asking and what how it actually frames the sort of the epistemic framework of a student, right? So they believe that knowledge is something that involves there being a question and anybody who asks a question clearly knows what the answer is. And my process is to discover the answer that you have, right? What uh, Chi and Glasser in 1985 called a classroom style question versus a real life question. And that classroom style question is one that is contained. It's certain, it lacks ambiguity. It's one where, and this goes back to the sixties and seventies and to the old chess research that uh, Simon was doing back then. You know the question, you know the process by which you want the question addressed and you know what the answer is. And those Classroom style questions are also the sorts of things that respond to AI too, right? To that sort of robotic system that allows us to do automated grading and all the rest of this stuff. Clear question, clear process, clear answer. Also responds to clear objectives. I know exactly what we're going to learn today. You set up this clear thing. And in a lot of ways, we look at these things as positive parts of our educational system. But underlying it, the hidden curriculum underneath that is. If there is a question, then there is an answer. And the person who asked me is in the power position to know the answer. And my job as a student is to guess what the answer is or have paid attention and know what it is because I heard them say it in class or whatever else. But that whole framework fundamentally creates a place where our students are not prepared to actually live their lives. We're working against them being able to confront uncertainty, to do what Riddle and Weber would call deal with wicked problems, for instance, in that framing, right? That ability to address the climate, to address political strife, to deal with oil in a nuanced way, right? Oil is bad or oil is good. No. As a Canadian, uh, we need heating in our houses. Are there paths towards getting past it? Yes, but it's not a simple question. It doesn't have an answer. There's nuance. There's uncertainty there. There's no right answer, but we've prepared them given the way we framed our system to think that there are right answers. Wow, that was a lot longer than I expected to explain that. Oh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And and it's also making me think about all of the 
the reading and thinking I've done about imagination. So much of the time, I used to teach in a doctoral program, a technology and leadership class, which is kind of a funny talk about a broad set of topics right there. But one of the things I really realized I could do for them if there was nothing else coming out of that class was to convince them to stop saying that they just weren't technical people. And that there really isn't such a thing that technology is so huge and I'll be darned if I could just barely get myself on a Wi-Fi because it's one of those things my husband's always taking care of me. We have quite the exquisite internet set up in our home. (laughs) But, you know, I used to teach eight different eight-hour Excel classes so I can get my way around in a spreadsheet a lot better than he ever could too. So, But to get them thinking about that they are becoming a person who uses technology for, and just to help them reframe that language. And in that same way, I explain that often what we're lacking is an imagination. It's not the how-to. The how-to, if you if you know, if you have an imagination for what's possible, then you're often going to be able to navigate your way into finding that information. But it, it reminded me as I was looking through your research and reading the work of your students and, and watching the interviews that you've done with them that you seem to be intentionally trying to expand their imagination or maybe maybe having them expand your imagination. I don't know. Did you think about these? Did imagination come into this work as well? I mean, I, w- I was framing it as creativity, mm. but it, I think it comes down. I think we're talking about the same kind of thing. I think we're in the same sort of ballpark. Mm. I, at the same time, I got asked by the OECD to do um, a curriculum for integrating creativity into the K-12 classroom. Probably I was the wrong person for them to ask, but I took a run at it. And so the whole time I was doing this with the students for these two years, I was doing this piece for the OECD at the same time. So creativity was never far from my head. And the the start of that work and the place where I uh, I presented back to them when they asked me to to the beginning, where I thought I where I assumed I would lose the contract, uh, was where I told them that creativity is the most annoying thing that you can ever have in a classroom. So pitching creativity is, it's a hilarious thing given our, our K-12 system, for instance, university systems on a whole lot different because that brings the uncertainty. Like true creativity is really annoying if what you want is control of your classroom. Like actual creativity where you've created an environment where you don't know what you're going to get from your students, where you're legitimately giving them the resources, the time, the, the deconstructed power structure, like all of those things where you open things up where you can do it, then you legitimately don't know what you're going to get. You can spend a week working on something and not get something out of it. You know, if what you're looking for is an outcome, quote unquote. And so for me with those students, I'm always thinking about that, that sort of creative process like that, where I don't really know what's going to come out of it. And I mean, you took a look at that work, it got pretty dark. The, the work with students were looking at trying to think about possible futures. Uh, And I mean, if you're a 22-year-old right now and you're looking at the future, you know, 25 years ago in a reasonably affluent part of Canada, your future was, you know, uncertain. But, you know, the idea of buying a house, the idea of the climate being secure, the idea, those things were like not things that were a concern. You may not have currently have the money, but the pathway to having it was there. Now that uncertainty that lives in different parts of the world that has not influenced us here in the global north in the same way has now started to spread into it a little bit further across right so now people are like but students are like well i don't expect i'll ever buy a house i don't know whether or not we're going to be live be able to live in this city along the coast because it might be underwater right you know you've got these kinds of uncertainties that maybe mirror 
the sort of Cold War nuclear kind of uncertainty, but that was such a big monolith of a problem. This is a myriad of different problems, all of which we have some kind of impact on. Whereas the arms race was not something that was ever about us. Whereas the climate, the like all of these things were kind of in it, right? So it's not a distant, terrible fear. It's a very present one. When the students started doing the futures activity that we did, just kept coming up dark, <laughs> kept coming up dark. And I was trying to leave them the space for that. But at the same time, if you introduce somebody into a creative activity that brings them to a dark place, you've taken on a responsibility, right? And that's the other thing about creativity in a classroom is that this wasn't a classroom. They were, there were students who were employed by me, but still, when you, you bring people into those kinds of spaces, you've got some kind of responsibility to bring them out or at least show them some paths back to, you know, so it was, it was kind of scary there for a while, frankly, but uh, they did. I, I thought it, it turned out really, really interesting. I certainly did not expect the kinds of outcomes we got. I was legitimately surprised by some of the paths they took. But again, the whole thing was just a process of deconstruction of going, no, guys, look, I really don't know what you guys are going to do. And I do not have an outcome described. Like, there's a process, but I want you guys to pull this out from your own experiences and stuff. So it was it was really interesting. It was an interesting process. So you and I might go dark for just a little bit in terms of exploring these different types of problems. How did you have them go and look at these issues in the world? And then and then how much, to what extent were they surprised or not surprised by what they uncovered? So we used, uh, in Canada, we have something called SHRC, the Social, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. They have 16 uh, future challenges that they had up, and we use that as a framework to, to work upon. It's probably four years old now, and I know I've talked to them, they're actually working on the new set, but it was, it was a reasonable place to start, it created a bit of a structure for us to work with. They know, right? There, there were no surprises there. And I mean, I particularly remarkably, it was great. The students I was working with are really smart and really aware, but uh, no, they're very well aware. Like there's a, there's a whole sort of undercurrent of dark humor going through this age. The people I've spoken to who are this age right now, they know that some of these problems are not a distant concern, but rather an upcoming concern, right? So I think this is why the uncertainty piece is so important. Right. So if you think of, I don't want to jump ahead here, but I, I, if you think that preparing students with the answers of yesterday is going to prepare them for, and I'll keep talking about the climate, for dealing with the climate, you are sorely mistaken because the climate challenges we're facing do not have answers. There is no solution. And if you go in it trying to solve it, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to get disenchanted and you're going to give up. If you look at it more like a tug of war, where as long as you're pulling, you're helping your side a little bit. And if you let go, your side is hurt a little bit. Then you've got the right frame of mind for dealing with these gigantic, with these wicked problems, with these sort of societal problems that we're looking at. You know, poverty is the same. Food security is another good example. Like all of these things, you don't solve them. You never solve them. And if you go out um, you look at uh, students who start doing advocacy when they're younger, 
right? They'll get into advocacy stuff and then they'll get really engaged and it's good for six months or a year or two years or three years. And then eventually they get good enough at it that they realize that there's a whole system stopping them from making change. And then they give up, right? Because they were going trying to solve the problem because that's the way they see the world. And that's the way they've been taught to see the world. Whereas we can bring them into this conversation from an uncertainty perspective, acknowledge that these problems don't get fixed, but they can get better. Right. And they get better if we work on them like things that get better, like a like a relationship. My relationship with my partner, who also Bonnie, doesn't ever solve itself. We're never done. It's a process of constantly working on it, reconnecting, trying to find spaces where things make sense. And I think if 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 everybody is honest with themselves, the vast majority of the things that are important to them in their lives are exactly like that. And yet we teach as if things are true and false, as if there are answers. It's like uh, engineering design model, right? I was working for um, a government. Um, we'd had some people come in from um, a consulting firm to talk to us. And we're working on healthcare, doing some work in the healthcare system. And they were talking about failing fast. And the example they were using was Lululemon. And we kind of stopped the consultants and we're like, you realize we're talking about a hospital. And well, yeah, well, that's how Lululemon made all their money. Like, whoa. These are humans in a hospital. Failing fast is going to go bad for those individual humans who actually happen to be in the hospital. We don't just, because in your mind, there is a way of measuring success. You, it's money, but you have this way of measuring success that allows you to win the game that you're playing. Those of us living in real life know that that's not how it works. Yes, you could say people not dying or people getting better, but do people get better? They, they don't get best. They don't get finished. They get, they improve. Sometimes they improve in different ways, right? You know, uh, I, I was managing a med school a couple of years ago and uh, I started asking this question to all the doctors I was working with. If you could have all of the knowledge of all the medical things, you could have one superpower, you could know everything, or you could get your patients to do what they're told, which one would you pick? 100% of the time, they pick patients doing what they're told. It's never about the content. It's always about the communication. It's always about people making change in their lives, right? And it doesn't matter where you look at it. All those things that are important to us, at some level, they end up being uncertain. They end up being difficult. They end up being a process, right? Boy, it's really powerful what you said about the problems not getting fixed, but they can get better. And it reminds me of on a recent episode, my friend Rob was talking about living with a disability and we, we know how to grieve with people who are injured and then they're better and everything's okay or someone gets a divorce, but now you're back in love or back, back out on the field or whatever that looks like. And we don't really do well with things that are ongoing. And I hadn't really applied it to these scenarios, but of course, that's a, an important lens to to for us to be able to put on. I haven't, like I said, I haven't done a lot of reading in the wicked problems area, just a, just a couple of books Read, but yeah, you definitely do have to re re-evolve how you're thinking and approaching those things. So you had students go out and look at these very, I would say, depressing set of problems, and yep. that's something going to be important for them. This is reality, so for them to be able to look at them and explore them, um, what was sort of the process that they went through from from that point on? Once they had in their set of hands, you know, here are the challenges. What what did they do next? So. Um... I use a sort of a reasonably standard futures thinking model. 
So you go out and you find the trends that are impacting the world. And with a group of 20-year-olds, they're not expert enough in their fields to be able to develop the trends. If I'm working with, uh, like if you and I were working together with a group of people who uh, we could name who we've been sort of in the field with for 20 years, right? And we brought them all together to talk about education. I would get those people to pull the trends out. When I'm working with 20-year-olds, not that they aren't smart, but they lack that sort of 20 years of experience that allow them to sort of sift through their field to pull it out. So I use those to sort of skip the first step of trend development and allow them to use an, an existing trend. So from there, what you do is you kind of, there's a variety of ways of doing it, but you look for overlaps and, and ways in which different things sort of come together um, into themes that start coming out of there, right? And so you, again, variety of ways, one of the things I like to do is tension pairs and sort of organize things into the tension pairs and break it down into three or four or five potential ways in which things could go. So um, one of the things you might talk, and actually I did this in, uh, a few years ago, and one of the things that had come out of it was a future of education that was entirely connected to the corporate world, where corporate funding into universities directly funded students, and then they had specialized training so that when they got to the businesses, they were already trained to work in that business. And this was following on trends where businesses are doing few like less training inside the business. They expect people to be more trained when they come and the influence of corporates, uh, corporate sponsorship into universities and was pulling those trends together to come up with this future. So at that point, you go out 20 or 25 years and imagine what that future could look like, right? Imagine what, if you followed that trends and they kept expanding to their natural conclusion, what does that future look like? It's not a prediction process. So I'm not saying this is what the future is going to look like, but rather it's dragging those trends through a different lens. So if we argue about trends right now, we get into factionalism, we get into all kinds of messy places. But when you take it out into this future space, you get a chance to really dig into those trends and talk about what they mean, right? And what their implications are. And so we went through that process over probably three weeks um, with those students. And again, I just happened to have them in place. We'd done a bunch of work before, so they were prepared for that work. And so, and then people can go and take a look at the, I won't try to describe the whole process, but if you go and take a look at the website that they put together, the video presentation they put together and all the rest of that stuff, you'll see where they ended up, what futures they chose and how those futures uh, allowed them to think about what the possible implications of those trends are. And the final step is now that we've thought about those trends deeper, what does that mean in terms of what we can do now? Like, what does it mean we need to develop now? So yeah, I find it a really, really helpful process. It's a long process. Like it's not a, it's not a half day activity, but uh, it was, it was a really useful process for me. And in the whole uncertainty journey that I'm trying to run over the next year, I really did want to start with students and to think about like to really sort of ground myself there before I move into uh, some of the other people out there who have been doing this work. And it's it struck a chord, right? I've heard back from a number of people who have looked at it and gone, oh, we're doing something similar to this in Australia. We're doing something similar to this in the Netherlands. And we've gotten this group of people who's starting to form around this. So it's, oh, wow. uh, it's worked out really well. So that first one was the one that shocked me the most. And I am remembering correctly that you and your partner, Bonnie, have lived in the United States and you've lived in Canada both, correct? Not the United States, no. We've lived in Korea. We've lived in Slovakia. We've lived, what's we live together? 
different places. Oh, okay. Not, not the states. So that was the one because since it comes up first in the research and it it looked at the company town and and how yeah. you know the company partnering with education and yeah. uh, so I I don't I have never lived in Canada but I spent a time there as a baby because my parents my dad had been drafted during the Vietnam and had a. a time in Alaska as a bookkeeper. <laughs> and when they were driving back from Alaska to the United States, th- there was some medical challenge. My mom had to stop by. And so she's saying, oh, well, where do we pay our bill? And how do we handle this? You know, since he was in the service, you know, how do we get this billing? And they're, no, you're fine. Go be well, <laughs> you know, take care of the baby and all that stuff. So I thought when you said um, the future of education is entirely connected to the corporate world in 20 to 25 years, what will that future look like? And I thought hospitals wanting to look more like Lululemon. <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> you know, the the profit motive is something that so many young people seem to have assumed as necessary in order to have successful medical enterprises. And I say successful, dripping in air quotes there. But uh, yeah. so I was sort of surprised in that that one. I didn't see necessarily. I mean, I guess lo- comparing it to the Lorax, maybe the problem is I need to go back and read the Lorax again because they did compare it to that. And that story is a for those who haven't read it is a Dr. Seuss, yep. which does look at the problems of corporatization of, in this case, the the environmental. Um, was the the trees right? Gosh, it's been so yeah. long since I. <laughs> our kids never really got into Doctor Seuss, so I still miss revisiting a lot of those stories. The truffula trees. There we go. There we go. Yeah. So it's funny because in that process, one of the things that they ended up doing was bringing back to books and movies, and it's something that I wasn't expecting. It's where they went with it, which was great. But with the company town, I ended up having to push them towards the positive outcome. Mm-hmm. So the negative outcome was easy to talk about. Right. So you're looking at the dark satanic mills in the UK. And those of you who, if you've ever looked at it, put in salt air, S-A-L-T-A-I-R-E, maybe it's just outside of Leeds. It's an old company town. They used to call them the dark satanic mills where they'd have the children working inside the mill. And your the distance of your house from the, from the mill showed like where your status was and the houses were bigger and then smaller and then smaller as you went away. And like this kind of, and then, you know, or like in the States with the mining towns, right? Where you've got the company store where, you know, basically your pay went to the company store and it didn't come to you at all because you were indebted and, you know, it kept you in there. That negative part is easy to talk about. But if the company is actually, if we're, if there's a shortage of, um, and you see this with Google, right? And they've been doing this for years, good and bad. And I'm not making a positive or negative judgment on how they run their stuff. I don't know. I've never worked there, but they do a lot of things to bring in a certain kind of talent. And if you were, I don't know, in Palo Alto, just to pick a random place, and you were trying to, I don't know, find a place to live, it would make sense at some level for you to create a compound where you could bring in people and they could actually live, where they could afford to live. They'd be closer in. You'd be, it starts to create a lot of advantages, right? And there's a lot of synergies that you can build into there. And you can, there are places in the States right now where those company towns are being built. And are positive, negative, but it's not about it being right or wrong. It's about what are the implications of it, right? Because we're not trying to solve a problem. We're trying to understand the issues we have a little bit deeper. So what what are the implications of corporations getting more into our day-to-day lives? Well, there are economies of scale there that make things cheaper, I guess. Broadly speaking, I'm going to be against corporations being more involved in our lives, but so I'm working hard here to try to find the positive end of it. But that was the journey that the students went on. And pushing them into there, 
and trying to push them to some of the positive outcomes was uh, was interesting. And then, you know, you tell them stories. And that's where the difference between teaching in that I know what curriculum I'm going to have at the front end to sort of guiding in. And I tell stories about, you know, 19th century England from stuff that I've read before or how communities can come together to learn together or whatever it happens to be. And so I don't know necessarily what they're going to learn, but it still requires the expertise on the front end to be able to, to respond to the work that they're doing. At least. One of the other challenges, of course, is our tendency as humans to think in dichotomous terms. And what you're describing seems like such a way to bring about a more unnatural but necessary way of thinking in terms of those implications. And rather than deciding right off the bat if something's right or wrong, having more of a sense of those implications seems like a really a great amount of wisdom to be able to give young people as they will be attempting to navigate these really difficult possibilities. And, and I understand it's hard to do at a systems level, right? So just on Twitter today, I was talking to a colleague from the UK and he said, I challenged, the civil, I challenged the civil servant in charge of the ed tech strategy why there was no mention of the word learning in the whole strategy. Her reply was, it's too vague a concept to measure, mm. right? So at a systems level, I understand why what I'm saying is not appealing because it's hard to be able to have a minister lift something over their head and go, look at what we've improved because you can't measure it, right? So in this case, we're not going to worry about learning because can't really measure it. I appreciate the fact that she knows we can't measure it because I would agree. I don't think it is a measurable quality, but the solution there can't be to just not care about it. <laughs> I appreciate the realization that learning can't be measured. Uh, another position I hold that is unpopular. But uh, again, uh, do I think you can track people's ability to memorize things? Yes, I do. I just, I don't think that reaches the bar of learning. Yeah. Well, this is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And my, oh my, do I wish I had a great transition for this, but I totally don't. <laughs> Both you and I are recovering from being unwell in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I do the best transition I can make is that both you and I might have benefited from in our in our recent unwell times of having a place for stuff that you want to consume when you just are, in this case, the app is called Sofa. So it's named after your leisure time. How are you going to spend it? And so in general, I'm going to recommend that people have a home for those kinds of things. TV shows you want to watch, movies, books you want to read, podcasts you want to listen to and all of that. So I just, I had recently recommended using a references manager and actually that turned into a whole episode of its own. So now I'm going to recommend having a sofa manager for the things that you might want to do on your leisure time. And I'll tell you, it really did pay off on this time. And now every time that somebody might recommend something good, I'll just go to the, again, the app is called Sofa. It is a iOS specific and a Mac specific app, but uh even if you don't have that, you could use Google Keep or another tool like that to track those kinds of things. But I really do like Sofa's visual elements, and I can put a widget on my tablet and be able to see the little tiny icons of all these things that people have recommended to me. And it really did uh, help me do a little bit of self-care during my recent downtime. So those are my couple of recommendations. And Dave, I'll pass it over to you for whatever you'd like to recommend. Sure, I'll, I'll actually take that up. I watch a lot of instructional videos on YouTube and, and I end up necessarily wandering into other things that are less instructional when I'm there. I took an hour and went through all the YouTube videos and turned off, like unrecommended all the stuff that was not productive for me to watch. 
I spent a whole hour going all the way through and then I would refresh the page and go through them again and refresh the page and go through them again. It has done wonders for my YouTube recommender engine. I have come across so much wonderful music that I didn't know about. And it's, it sort of rejuvenated my, my sort of joy of the randomness of the internet. It doesn't take a lot of time. You don't have to do as, take as long as I did, but it has been a really great change for me. And to, to sort of take control of some of these recommendations, to take control of, uh, and I've done the same thing. I mean, I've done this more over the years, but like in terms of silencing people on Facebook who aren't healthy for me to read and just taking that time to curate my space. So rather than turning it off completely going, I'm not going to do that anymore. And then eventually giving in and doing it again, taking that active curation and trying to, uh, trying to do a good job. So I recommend that it's been, it's been really, really good for me. I also recommend something a little bit uh, more technical that I came across uh, through the uncertainty work. So I got a call out of the blue from somebody who uh, works at TU Delft in the Netherlands, who was talking about circularity. And it was the first time I've come across the con. I mean, I may be the only person who has not seen it, but it was the first time I came <laughs> oh, no. across it. I somehow doubt that, <laughs> Dave. <laughs> oh. So it is about designing in a holistic manner. And there's a whole field out there right now that talks about rather than recycling, which is do the thing we normally do and then try to find a way to bring it back and reuse it, but rather change the way we build things and do things so that we don't have to. And re changing our concepts of engineering to being things and valuing the ways in which they fit into the overall system. So um, the link that I'll send along is to some of the research. I'm, I'm fortunate enough to go over and work with them in um, in November uh, to sort of talk a little bit about the work that they're doing. But it's another way of confronting uncertainty, right? It's another sort of, for me, it's a place of hope inside of this. It's like looking at the Billion Oyster Project in New York City, which is one of my favorites. If you guys aren't familiar with that, they're replanting oysters in the Hudson Bay. So Hudson Bay, Hudson, that's the one in, in New York City? Yes, yes. Yeah. So it used to be that oysters in like the 20s or whatever else in New York City were a huge, huge thing. And it's been years since anybody can eat anything coming out of the harbor. But oysters are an amazing cleaning system. Like they, they're they filters, right? So they, they filter all the stuff. So they're planting billions of oysters back in the harbor to clean it up. Right. And it's just one of those projects that I'm like, there's somebody taking on one small thing, well, big thing, but taking on a thing and sticking with it for years and just allowing it to get better. So my recommendation in there is just to try to find those pieces inside of this process where people have actually found ways to make small productive change and to resist that urge that says that's not going to solve the problem. Because that's that's the whole message of this uncertainty thing. We're not solving the problem. We're making it a little bit better where we can, right? And these projects are all to me examples of people making part of this better in ways that they can, in the ways in which we can contribute to those things. We can help fund them. We can help participate and stuff. So try to find those things where people are trying to make those small changes and see them as that positive light that they are. Dave, I had no idea that I would leave today's conversation so hopeful and uplifted. I had, I absolutely had no idea. And as I said earlier, I know both you and I had been a little under the weather and you have completely brightened my week. And oh, I'm happy to hear that. Thank you for leaving us all with so much hope today. Have a great day. Thanks once again to Dave Cormier for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. 
Today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stahoviak, and was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger. Podcast production support was provided by Sierra Smith, and these podcast episodes are just one teaching in higher ed resource. If you'd like to receive the weekly email updates, you can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And when you do, you'll get a, all of the show notes from the recent episode. And you'll also get a peek at the upcoming episode and some recommendations that are not shared on the podcast. So head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.